Okay, well, let's get started. My name is John Glazer. I'm Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Um, one of our speakers, uh, Paul Post uh, of the University of Chicago, got into some weather trouble, had his flight delayed, but he's in a cab. He's on his way. I suspect he'll uh, run in as one of us are speaking. So, uh, fingers crossed. Um, you know, I hope he gets here because this, this event began uh, as a result of an article he published uh, in Foreign Affairs um, on the decline of war thesis. You know, at any given moment in the past seven decades, war has been a reality in, in this world. And uh, this year or this day is no different. You have conflicts in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Ukraine and Yemen. Uh, but the ease with which we can point to obvious, glaring examples of human carnage and organized violence like this masks a broader trend towards peace over this same seven decades. And indeed, many scholars argue that that's been going on on a much longer time scale. In recent years, uh, many prominent experts have pointed, have made a point of, of emphasizing um, this trend towards peace and against state-on-state uh, -state war to counteract the conventional wisdom, which is aided by our sort of animal brains and modern technology, which actually enhances the deceptive power of things like the availability heuristic. Uh, Steven Pinker, very prominently, uh, wrote a book in 2011 that took, brought together basically all the data uh, and research on this question. Uh, and, and sort of uh, drew on a lot of existing scholarship, including some that, that our distinguished panel, panelists here today authored. Um, at the risk of overstating things, one might even say that this group of scholars were somewhat successful in penetrating the conventional wisdom that you know, things are basically as uh, wretched today as they always have been. But there's been a reaction to this by some others in academia. Um, and it's prompted a retort um, by many scholars distinguished in their own right to sort of throw water on this, on this optimism. Uh, so Paul, uh, who will hopefully be joining us soon, uh, co-authored this piece in Foreign Affairs with uh, his, his uh, colleague Tanisha Fazal. And it pushed back against this idea that, in fact, uh, states are going to war less often, war itself is becoming less deadly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in my opinion, this question of whether or not war is in decline is one of the most important questions in informing U.S. foreign policy. Um, and uh, also why it may have been, war may, may be declining is, is a really important question to ask. Um, and I think it's an empirical question, ultimately, at least the first one. So I hope that disinterested analysis can help settle the question, and that's what we're here to discuss today. Um, so Paul Post, who will be here soon as Associate Professor of Political Science at University of Chicago. Uh, Bethany Lacina is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Rochester. John Mueller, to my right here, is a political scientist at Ohio State University and a senior fellow here at Cato. And Christopher Fetweiss is a political uh, professor of political science at Tulane University. Uh, we'll start with Chris 
and uh, move on from there. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, John, and thanks, everybody, for coming out. Thanks for uh, braving the rain and getting here. Uh, I'm I have somewhere around 12 minutes, although I should probably speak slowly because I'm about to criticize somebody who's not here, which is a, which is a bit unfair, maybe. Uh, but I'm going to make three points today, and this, uh, with, of course, these 12 minutes. Uh, but we're here to talk about this article, as John said, the article that came out in November in Foreign Affairs, an important article and very interesting article about this overall trend of the of decline in war that people have been talking about. The article says, the co-authors say, it's becoming the consensus uh, in security circles. I wish that were true. I'm not sure it is. But still, nonetheless, the article essentially makes a couple of big points. First one is, and the most important one, that the notion that the war, that war is in decline is based on two primary insights, uh, the first, first of which is that fewer people die in war today, and there has not been a great power war since 1945. I'm not sure that's really true, though. My first point here is, and most of the article talks about how these two points are very questionable, especially because more people are surviving wars nowadays. We have better medical care, and so battlefield casualties today are going to, there's going to be fewer battlefield deaths because more people are surviving battle. Um, or we have better hospitalization trauma, we have, we, so we do better. And it's, that's true, because if you just look at raw death, not raw death totals, uh, war in Iraq looks a lot like the Philippine insurrection, about the same number of Americans died, but the war in Iraq was much more violent. Uh, it's just a lot more Americans, a lot more soldiers lived because we had better, better medical care. But I'm not really sure those are the two crucial observations in the whole argument about the decline of war. There's a lot of other things going on. This is essentially the graph, or the, uh, so the chart, the, the histogram that uh, our authors disagree with or take issue with. Uh, it's one that's com commonly used. It shows over, this is essentially battle deaths according to uh, the population, as a percentage of population. That's been going down. And their, their suggestion is we shouldn't put too much of a, uh, too much uh, credibility in this because there's other reasons why those deaths are going down. But that's not the only thing that's happening. I would think that the more important measures in, uh, are for the num overall numbers of wars that are occurring. And overall numbers of wars are declining over time. And in fact, every single measurable instance of violence has been going down. I think a lot of people in here probably know this kind of stuff. But mass killings, atrocities, genocides, since the end of the Cold War, the trends over all kinds of violence are similar. Uh, and you, there's this, these are wars, potentially conflict years for countries, and the bottom one is a number of countries at war. All the trends are roughly the same, and it doesn't just count vi uh, warfare. Violence, I mean, personal violence, murder and rape have been decreasing in the United States over time. Bullying, cyberbullying, uh, bullying in kids in schools are declining uh, over time. If you can extend it back centuries, there have been the homicide rates in Europe have declined steadily since the Middle Ages and continue to decline today. It's not just battle deaths decreasing because more people are surviving battle wounds. There's a lot more stuff going on. And one of my favorites, sort of un, uh, low, uh, dis lesser discussed uh, trend. I used to. I went to grad school right, uh, right off the Beltway in Maryland. And at Maryland, there's this operation, a uh, research institute called the Minorities at Risk Project, and we essentially tracked ethno-nationalist violence around the world and discrimination 
discrimination against minority groups, which is something you can measure, as it turns out, has also been declining over time, uh, especially since the end of the Cold War. And th this only goes till about 2005. I couldn't find a good right-clickable graph to update it. But just take my word for it, the decline continues. Uh, there's less discrimination against ethnic minor minority groups, political and economic discrimination, than there used to be during the Cold War. And as a result, there's, lot, there's less ethnic conflict, there's less civil war, there's less internal violence. These are the kinds of things that are not captured by the article's criticism, I'm afraid, which is, as I said, a little bit unfair to criticize an article. I guess I could say whatever I want about it, because uh, he's not here to rebut it. However, uh, there's a lot more going on. For instance, this map. Everybody who lives on this map, and a country in this map, is living in a society at peace. This is the first time that I could find and went back and did some digging that there's no wars in the Western Hemisphere. And it goes to some degree how you define a war, but even the, the, last, the last conflict has, has, was settled here a couple of years ago. And the peace treaty, which sometimes looks shaky, has been holding in Colombia. There's no conflict. Now this might end, you know, there may be conflict in Venezuela by the time we, get, by the time we have lunch. But for now, we are looking at an entire hemisphere at peace for the first time since at least the 17th century. And, and when, I ever, when I say that, somebody always says, well, yeah, but what about the narco violence in Mexico? The homicide rate in Mexico is also down. The last bit here is the, uh, the, the, the up, uptick after 2005 is essentially the narco criminal violence that's going on in Mexico, uh, which most people in my business don't really consider to be war to begin with. This is a criminal violence. It's not a conflict over power. It's not a, what we consider to be warfare. But even then, over time, the homicide rate in Mexico is less than it used to be. We live in much more peaceful times than most of us are aware of. Certainly, our political leaders seem to be aware of. I wish there were a growing consensus that peace is spreading. I don't really see that that's the case. And this is also happening, of course, at a time when we have a heck of a lot more people in the world than ever before. We're coming up on 8 billion of us. And far fewer of us, as, a, as raw totals, are dying or living in societies at warfare and dying, in, in, dying violently. We also have a heck of a lot more states. The, the League of Nations had 63 at its peak. Right now, we have 194 in the UN. And they're not fighting each other. Something seems to be going on that extends beyond just battlefield casualties and who is surviving. I think I've said, had this trivia question up for you before here at, at uh, Cato. But I would imagine people weren't taking notes. So if you were here last time, you might remember this number. What, what, does anyone want to take a guess how many UN members have been essentially disappeared against their will? If you said zero, if some of that murmuring was zero, it was right. The closest we had of, a, of essentially conquest, the Soviet Union imploded, but didn't, it didn't, wasn't conquered by its neighbors. Uh, the South Vietnam was absorbed by North Vietnam, but South Vietnam only had observer status at the UN. Saddam Hussein tried to absorb his neighbor in 1990, but was thrown out. Conquest is essentially over. It's just weird in human history. Most of the time, you have to, had to worry about your neighbors marching in and taking over and making you worship their god and give, paying taxes to their king. That doesn't happen anymore. Something weird is going on, and weird historically speaking. We're different from most of human history, and there's reason why perhaps it might, there's optimism that this might be indicative of a larger trend. The second point starts here. Second point starts with Africa battle deaths. A lot of people might think, yeah, but in the global south, there's places where there's still chaos, right? 
A co-author of mine and I a few years ago tracked battle deaths in Africa and found essential, and wars in Africa and violence in Africa and eventually found this, that we are living right now, Africa right now, is the most peaceful it has ever been. Probably, it's certainly in recorded history, maybe going back ever, especially when you factor in the enormous population growth. This seems, however, maybe to go along with our point though in the article, maybe it's just battle deaths, more people are surviving. I suggest that a lot of places in the global south, the medical, medical systems aren't quite as good as we'd like, but today, there are a couple of, there are, there's still violence going on. There's a couple of wars going on in Africa, even though a couple of the big prominent ones are currently under sort of tenuous ceasefires and perhaps long-term peace agreements. But this is less violence than there ever is, has been before. So this, this overall global trend is not just a global north phenomenon. But the reason I want to bring up Africa is for something that's going on here. Unbeknownst to most of us, unless you're a map specialist or a geography enthusiast, there's a little panhandle coming off Namibia right there. It is called the Caprivi Strip, named after some German. That's always, but it's, it's the, in the Caprivi Strip there, there is a rebellion going on. Now, this rebellion has been going on since the late 90s. It has resulted in the death of 14 people. The Caprivi Liberation Army apparently would like Caprivi to be, be uh, independent for some reason. This is not a particularly interesting story, except that we know about it. The people, the lousy people want to be independent. This is a conflict we would never have heard about 50 years ago, 60 years ago. We just know more about the violence that is occurring around the world now than we ever did before. We are living in an age with a lot of what political scientists refer to, chronological bias. We know more about the conflicts that are going on now. Uh, it's easier to hide atrocities and mass killings and goofy little rebellions 50, 60 years ago. During colonial times, this kinds of things happened all the time, and there was good reason to suppress the knowledge of this happening. We know more about today's violence than ever before. We, we think, which helps, I think, people believe that there's more violence out there. And it also skews the data in the direction of the critics of this war is declining hypothesis. We know about the deaths that are going on, and we have better data about them, and it seems to be declining. The quick third point I have for you, though, you know, this is in the old days, there are still problems in Africa, don't get me wrong, but it's not like the gentlemen on this slide were you know, fighting according to Marcus of Queensbury rules, and it, it used, things used to be much worse. Nobody says the world's perfect, but it is getting better by most measure, in every measurable category. However, I'm glad Professor Post has joined us because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to take issue with and disagree with one other, the last, sent, last segment of his article in which he and his co-authors say this, the fear is good. And they're not alone. Uh, Jennifer Mitson, Ohio State uh, uh, political scientist, I believe, in her review of Steven Pinker's most recent book said, you know, it's good to have fear because it keeps us from getting complacent, keeps the human rights community active, keeps peace studies going. I would suggest this is profoundly wrong, however. I disagree strongly that fear is good. It is not possible to keep fear isolated in the human rights community. It tends to permeate through society. It permeates into boardrooms and staterooms and convinces leaders that they're in danger too. And fear, fearful actors do specific things. They try to address the root causes of their fear. They arm themselves. They spend a lot more on defense than they would have to if they weren't as afraid, especially when that fear is based on nothing. 
when that fear is based on at least a, at least a less rational, less empirical foundation. Fearful actors go abroad in search of those monsters that are scaring them. Fearful actors attack Iraq. Fear is not good, I would suggest. It is, and it, I thought this crowd might like a uh, quote from this guy who said once, reminded us that fearful actors can't even think straight. They do irrational things. When fear is the dominant emotion you have, you're going to be acting in ways that are not necessarily in your longer-term interest, especially when that fear is not based on a empir good empirical foundation. If it's irrational, unjustified fear, it's a big problem. It, 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 and it leads to all sorts of different issues and all sorts of different uh, problems, and if you want to understand what a lot of U.S. foreign policy is driven by, it is by fear. And today, that fear is based on nothing, or virtually nothing. Security is relative. You're never going to be totally safe. You can't ever be uh, without any danger. But relatively speaking, this is an extremely safe country. And I think one of the reasons to get to feeling safe and get to have a better foreign policy and less concern about the threats that are out there is to recognize that there's a heck of a lot less warfare going on there. There's a heck of a lot less violence in the world today. And that fear is not actually good. And I would suggest if anybody wants to be more bored than they currently are listening to this about that topic, they can uh, check out this, where I explain it in much more uh, brutal detail. But thank you very much. So thank you very much, Chris. Uh, I was going to leave Paul to the end just to accommodate his, uh, his flight schedule, but now that he's here, I'll have him go, and then, and then John, and then Bethany. And I'll just say Chris's book is not boring. I highly, highly recommend you get uh, Pathologies of Power. Great. Well, thank you, John, for uh, in, inviting me here to come here. Uh, thank you all for your patience. Thank you, everyone, uh, Chris, John, Bethany, for participating in this. Um, I'm excited to be here, and I also appreciate your patience with, yes, my flight schedule and, and the various snafus. But I'm here now, and I'm really, I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Um, because in many ways, as I tell a lot of my students, there's probably no bigger question that we could approach as social scientists than the question of war and the prevalence of war. And indeed, it's a question that uh, John Mueller has addressed in some of his most influential books and books that we still, um, I still refer to off of my shelves. And so Remnants of War, um, Retreat from Doomsday being two of the most prominent. And so given that, it was something that I've taught my students about. It's something I've thought about a long time. And then at that point, it also turned out one of my colleagues, Tanisha Fazal, also had been thinking about this issue quite a bit. And so that led us to start sharing our thoughts. And what it turned out was both of us had been thinking about this issue in the same way. And that way being that unlike the narrative that we would hear from, say, a Steven Pinker, better, better Angels of Our Nature, we felt that war didn't seem to be on the decline. Now, there might be other forms of violence that are on the decline, other forms of depraved behavior that might be on the decline. But when it came to the study of something that we and everybody on this, in this forum here studies very closely, we felt the claim that war was on the decline didn't seem to sit well with us. Now, before I go into why that is, I have to start off by conceding a point right away. And that point being that since World War II, we haven't had World War III. So I'm totally willing to concede that point, that there has not been another world war. And I'm also willing to say that that is a very good thing. 
um, largely because a third world war would probably be more devastating than either of the first two combined. And I would also say that a lot of the institutes, policies, international organizations that have been put into place since World War I and World War II to help us either understand war or to prevent war. Things like NATO, things like the European Union, or even things like the Council on Foreign Relations or the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. These came out of World War I as a need to understand war. Having said all that, and having said that that's a good thing, I think that that statement that we haven't had World War III since World War II needs two important caveats. And these two caveats are found in this piece that Nisha and I wrote. The first caveat is I should probably add the word yet to the end of that sentence. We haven't had World War III yet. But the reality is there are a lot of features of the international system, a lot of structural features, a lot of policies that are in place here in DC as well as abroad that make the possibility of World War III very real. Most notably, the presence of nuclear weapons in the world. But not just the presence of nuclear weapons, but the type of policies the governments have for the deployment of those weapons, the maintenance of, of those weapons. For example, US policy being launch on warning. That creates a very short time frame in which a US president would have to make a decision to launch, and that raises the prospects of an accidental launch. An accidental launch could, in turn, that leads to retaliation, spark a World War III, and though it might be a very short war, it would be an immensely devastating war. And so that is just one scenario, not a scenario, one scenario that I know my students often, when they hear that, they you know, have their jaws dropped. They're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. I didn't know about launch on warning. But once we realize that, we realize that the possibility of another world war is still prevalent is still present. And even though we haven't had it in 70 years, the reality is prior to the First World War, we hadn't seen anything like it. And that's the second caveat that I want to bring up, is that the world wars, especially World War I and World War II, shouldn't be our baseline for evaluating anything. They were exceptional in terms of their magnitude with respect to battle deaths, number of actors involved, intensity, duration. Really, no wars had been like it, either of them, prior to them happening. And if you look at any data table figure graph that tries to, say, plot battle deaths over the century or battle deaths over the past 200 years, you'll always notice that there are these two huge outliers right about the middle of the graph. And they're, of course, World War I and World War II. And so those are two important caveats that I think are really important for when one is talking about the decline of war, especially when it comes to the prospects of another major war, is the idea that there's a yet, and the idea that we probably should not be using World War I and World War II as our baseline. Now having said that, what does this mean for war in general? Well, if you look at, this is where I would come in with yet another concession. So if one concession that I'll make is that, yes, we haven't seen World War III since World War II, the other concession is, indeed, the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century are way less deadly with respect to warfare than the middle of the 20th century. And the reason why is because if you're starting with a huge outlier, such as World War II, and then progressing from there, you're inevitably going to see a decline. 
But the key is to say, what does that decline look like if you were to remove those outliers? Now, this is where I think Chris made a very good point about the chronological bias. On the one hand, being able to go further back, say, into the early 19th century or even earlier, the data become problematic. There's a lot of wars we just don't know about. And I would say, though, that most of this isn't a problem so much for wars, especially if we're studying, say, European warfare. But it really becomes a problem if we're looking at militarized activities that are just below thresholds of war. Um, things that, in my discipline, we like to refer to as militarized interstate disputes. If you look at these data, you can see that there are more of them today than there were in the past. But probably that's because we're better at measuring them today than we were in the past. But when it comes to activities like war, and especially in regions of the world where we have, we feel like, fairly good data regarding the onset and the prevalence of these wars, what we'll notice is the second half of the 20th century and the first portion of the 21st century don't look all that different from the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century in terms of prevalence of war, in terms of the deadliness of war, in terms of the countries being involved in war, and in terms of where wars are occurring. One big difference between then and now would be that some of the wars in the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the in the first portion prior to 1914 of the 20th century did result in more battle deaths than a lot of the wars since World War II. Not all of them. There were many wars that were much smaller than, say, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iran-Iraq War, the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Those were all much more devastating wars than a lot of wars that occurred even between major powers in the 19th century and the early 20th century, wars such as the Russo-Japanese War or even the Franco-Prussian War. But what's important to notice is that those earlier wars and this is a big point that my co-author, Tanisha Fazal, has raised in many forums. And indeed, she's writing a book right now on this topic. Is that many of those wars, a major reason why their battlefield deaths would match or maybe exceed the deaths experienced in more recent wars, isn't due to more aggressive fighting, isn't even due to better usage of weaponry. It's due to Today, we have better battlefield medicine. As one example, during World War II, the ratio of casualties to killed was 2 to 1. In the Iran-Iraq War, it's 10 to 1. Examples of this include clotting agents, as well as the ability to be able to evacuate soldiers who are injured, shot, maimed on the battlefield, and be able to get them treatment within what they call the golden hour. An argument that Nisha has made in many forums, and I agree with this, and we make this in our foreign affairs piece, is that this is a big contributor to seeing differences in the casualty counts, and specifically the death counts between these late 19th century wars and the wars of the late 20th century and 21st century. In fact, if anything, the problem should even be amplified more when you account for the fact that the weaponry itself that's being used today is even more accurate, more deadly than it was during the late 19th century and 21st century. So that kind of shows the extent to which the medicine has had to catch up and even exceed our ability to be able to kill and maim soldiers. Given that, 
Nisha and I wouldn't say that war is on the increase. But what we would say is that there's no good argument that we can see in the data to say that war is on the decline, that the act of war is on the decline. We still see war. War is still a major instrument of state policy. We have no reason to expect states to stop using this policy. And indeed, much of the data that one looks at to evaluate this policy doesn't even account for the most, some of the deadliest wars that are occurring today, Yemen, Syria, Ukraine. To give you another example of the extent to which new wars and future wars could be just as devastating as some of the past wars, is look at an, a statistic that people frequently don't look at with wars, because it doesn't deal with a soldier being shot or a civilian being killed, and that is refugees. The refugee crisis in 2015-16 was on par and was considered the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Why do you have refugees? Because they're fleeing war so that they're not killed by it. And they have better ability to be able to do this today than they would have back even during World War II. And so yet another indicator showed that our ability to cause chaos, mayhem, death, and destruction through militarized violence we wouldn't say is on the wane. So with that, what I want to end with is just a, you know, kind of a nod back to Pinker, which is, of course, Pinker's argument is that he maintains that the better angels of our nature are helping to reduce conflict throughout the world. And indeed, other people, including some of my colleagues up here, make similar arguments in similar ways and in different ways as well. But what we would maintain is when it comes to warfare, at least, we don't think that the better angels of our nature have gotten the better of us. Thank you. OK, thank you. Um, I'm coming out with a book later this year, which goes against a lot of things that Paul said, um, um, called The uh, Decline of uh, International War. Be published by Cambridge University Press. So um, this is not the beginning of the slides. This slide is a hidden slide. Can you go back to the first slide? All right. OK. Yeah, are they? Okay, this is going to be tricky because it looks like there's a whole bunch of hidden slides in here, which I was not going to show. But anyway, uh, let me bring with this. Uh, the thing I, I, I actually said several things that Paul said I really agree with, but one I don't agree with, and, and the basis of what I want to talk about uh, is the change of attitude toward war since the end of the 19th century, and particularly international war, which is the main thing I want to talk about uh, uh, as, as it is today. Uh, in, in the 1980s, Paul Schrader, the uh, diplomatic historian pointed out that the countries in Europe had substantially managed to remain at peace with each other for the longest continuous stretch of time since the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, Brad DeLong, an economist in Berkeley, a few decades later said, we've now had the longest period of peace in the, on the Rhine since the second century before uh, the Christian era, the current era. Um, the, the word Europe, according to Wikipedia at least, uh, was only coined about 400 BC. 
So it means that Europe is currently at a, at a condition of peace greater than any time in its, since it was, it was uh, uh, created as a, sub, as a, uh, as a word. Um, and this is pretty impressive because um, Europe used to be the most warlike of continents. And there's a bunch of quotes from historians uh, on this. It used to have wars virtually every minute, every day practically. And now, of course, it hasn't had any international wars and virtually no civil wars, for that matter, uh, since 1945, the longest period of time. Uh, Evan Luard, a diplomatic historian, points out that given the scale and frequency of war during the preceding centuries in Europe, this is a case of a change of spectacular proportions, perhaps the single most striking discontinuity in the history of warfare as any provide, anywhere provided. I'd like to argue this is really an important, significant thing. Uh, Paul may disagree on that, but uh, it seems to me we ought to take it into consideration. Um, uh, Paul Johnson, a historian, says a similar thing. Robert Jervis, a political scientist. This is really a big deal, in my opinion, in their opinion. Uh, these are the numbers of wars that have taken place, according to the estimate of uh, Scandinavian researchers, some of the, similar to the ones that basically um, uh, Chris was talking about earlier. The bottom line is the green line, which is the number of, at any given year, how many international wars killing at least a 1,000 people, battle deaths, were, were uh, uh, created. And there have obviously been very few. Most of them are pretty minor. Some, as Paul pointed out, the Iran-Iraq war was anything but minor. But there's also been a decline even during that period of time. So not only has Europe remained free of peace, free, free of uh, war, um, interesting slip there, um, but, um, uh, but, the, but international peace has, has spread from Europe to the developed world and to every place else. In this century, there's been, by there's the way they count them, there have been no international wars anywhere in the world except for two that were started by the United States uh, in, in, in this century, 21st century. Uh, one was the taking over of Afghanistan in 2001 and the kicking out of Saddam Hussein in 2003. So uh, at the same time, however, Paul's certainly right to point out there have been a lot of wars. Uh, there have been basically civil wars, that's at the, the top two chunks, um, at, at which rose a lot in the 1980s, mostly, I think, because of the results of decolonization. That has also declined. Uh, the blue thing, which is uh, civil wars with outside intervention, as you can see, have rather increased. And so the fact that countries basically uh, no longer fight international wars with each other doesn't mean they've necessarily given up war or warlike activity. Uh, they frequently intervene in other people's civil wars, whereas back in the old days they might have stayed out, which fits somewhat with what uh, Paul was talking about. Um, okay, I'd like to trace now a change of attitude about international war um, going back before 1914. I'll do this fairly briefly. Before 1914, war was almost always, as Michael Howard points out, considered to be acceptable and inevitable and for many people of uh, settling international differences. It's just the way you did it. Um, and you could find it's extremely easy. I was amazed how easy it was to find uh, people saying this thing about this about war before 1914. Beautiful, honorable, sublime, heroic, cleansing, manly, necessary, progressive, uh, and redemptive. At the same time, when they're asked about peace, uh, they found it filled with materialistic uh, materialism, immorality, stagnation, frivolity, utter emptiness, bovine content, my favorite, uh, and death. Uh, so what, what you can do is you find extremely easy to find this. Um, there's several books on it, and I, when I looked at my, it myself, it was uh, amazingly easy to find that, ha, the, the, those kinds of statements being made. Uh, I'll give you just a few quick examples. 
a prolonged peace favors the predominance of a mere commercial spirit and with it a debasing self-interest, cowardice, effeminacy that tends to degrade the character of a nation. Immanuel Kant, 1790. Uh, a, uh, an American admiral saying, war is, that's how we progress. How about a theologian? Uh, in an article called uh, War, uh, it, uh, God's Purpose in War, uh, the Re Reverend Father H.I.D. writer said it evokes the best features of human nature, giving a, predominance, a spirit of predominance over the flesh. Uh, going into World War I, a uh, British poet uh, ironically titled a poem, Peace, in which he said, now thank God we're going into war again. And the fourth line is really interesting. It's saying, as swimmers into cleanness leaping. So he signed up, said, well, I'm going from dirt and filth and disgust to something really clean like war. Proved to be not quite clean enough because he was bit by a mosquito uh, in, the, uh, in about the fourth month of the war. It became infected and he died. Um, so he may have had later ideas. Okay, now with World War I, this changed. And what's the, the, the important thing that can be shown quantitatively just by rough sort of content analysis, it's incredibly difficult to find anybody saying the same thing in Europe and North America. Uh, it basically has gone, and historians have also noticed that. Uh, Arnold Toynbee, for example, said World War I marked the end of the span of 5,000 years. Uh, during which war is one of mankind's institutions, Bernard Brody, other people, saying basically the same thing. Um, and uh, Bernard Brody also talking after the, in the 20s, when I have to live through the post-war period to anticipate, to appreciate fully how the anti-war and anti-military attitudes engulfed all forms of literature and in time, the movies. Uh, let me give you one example, Strike Up the Band, 1927, a, a uh, musical about a war between the United States and Switzerland. Um, uh, that uh, was on Broadway at that time. The uh, strike of the band begins this way, the song. We fought in 1917 and drove the tyrant from the scene. We're in a bigger, better war for your patriotic pastime. We don't know what we're fighting for, and we didn't know the last time. Uh, that, was a, that was basically standard stuff. I wrote some liner notes for this saying, this is a preaching to the choir. That was a standard feeling. Okay. Um, the question then is why did World War I have this impact? I'll go through this very briefly. Uh, it was, of course, very destructive, but if you're in Troy, after the Greeks arrived, the destructiveness was total. They killed every single person. They burned the place to the ground, and, they, and the people they didn't kill, they put into slavery, frequently sexual slavery. Furthermore, our attitudes of wars changed. Uh, it couldn't be because um, there are plenty of destructive wars they could have looked at in the past. One of these, of course, was the 30, 30 Years' War. And until the 1930s, it was common knowledge that 80% of the Germans and people in the Germanic area were killed during the 30 Years' War. So they thought the war was not really that bad. It was only about 10 or 20% were killed. Uh, but they, they had a war in which they thought 80% of the people were killed, and it didn't leave, lead them to want to uh, get rid of it. I certainly will not argue that World War I was uh, supreme in stupidity, futility, or pointlessness. I won't even deal with that, nor was it unromantic. You'd be shocked to learn that mud, leeches, and dysentery were not invented in 1914. There was a 19th century economic development, which some people think was important, that the, that, the, that the Europeans were getting richer at this time, but they were still, even though they were definitely getting richer, it's called the European miracle, they still tended to wallow in, in the glories of war. 
Uh, the main thing that was different, the only thing that was really unique about World War I, was that there's a pre-war peace movement, and I'll talk about it very briefly. Uh, it started with a novel in 1889 um, called Lay Down Your Arms. There's an anti-war novel. I won't go into details on it. Let me... Uh, um, and uh, by a woman, uh, 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 it became a huge bestseller. And the, the author, Berta von Zutner, was as surprised as anybody else. It, it suddenly caught on. And from that moment on, there had been peace ideas around the Quakers and so forth. Uh, but uh, it's from that, on, that moment on that basically there was a sort of a rise of a movement against war, international war. They were not worried about colonial wars or civil wars. Some of it were aesthetic, like hers. She, think it was, she thought it was just disgusting, uh, barbaric. There are moralists like the Quakers. There are economic types like uh, well, this, like uh, Norman Angel in the Grand Illusion, saying it, it isn't economically profitable. Uh, it make, doesn't make any sense economically. There's also arguments from this basic ideological, particularly from socialists who didn't get along very well with the bourgeois peace societies. Um, it was possible at that time, Chibi Gooch, just before World War I, a prominent British historian said, maybe war is going out. That proved, of course, not to be the case. Um, okay, one of the things that happened before the war was there's still a persistence of war enthusiasm. Angel was dismissed because wars are not fought for mere booty, and this basically, a statement from the German War League, Youth League, let us laugh out loud at those old women in men's trousers, pansies, they would, uh, they're implying, who are afraid of war and com therefore complain it as ghastly or ugly. That still was the, the predominant uh, period. Okay, so what happens then at World War I was basically change these attitudes, and my argument that this was really significant. I have, uh, however, a speed bump, bump as uh, Jack Snyder puts it, uh, to deal with, which is World War II. Um, and uh, uh, so, I have, so just let me do this really quickly, and I'm glad to talk about it more if you want later. Uh, Japan did still have these attitudes. This is a, a Japanese war ministry pamphlet from the 1920s. Uh, Japan was not affected by this change. Obviously, it was affected by the Second War. And the other obvious speed bump issue is Germany. Um, uh, and the person in charge there was Adolf Hitler. And I don't have time to go into it. I'd be glad to do more if you'd like. Uh, but um, the, the, as far as I can see, he was the only Euro John Keegan, the military soon is right. There's only one European who really wanted war, and that was Adolf Hitler. Uh, Jervis, Kershaw, Weinberg, Bouvier, in a very recent book. He was, he, was, he was basically the only person who really wanted war. In other words, without Adolf Hitler, World War II would not have happened. There would have been problems, there'd be readjustments, there'd be appeasement, but they'd all be fairly trivial. Um, I did an article um, uh, recently in uh, War on the Rocks on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, uh, the 11th day of the 11th month of 2018 rather than 1918, arguing that without Hitler, World War II wouldn't have happened. Okay, uh, let me conclude with just three points, getting now back to the end of the, to the um, um, uh, World War, after World War II. Uh, one is the question about nuclear weapons, where they've made much difference, and a lot of people, of course, think they have. Uh, but it seems to me they weren't. Included in the peace consensus, if that's what it is, was the Soviet Union, and there's no evidence whatever that they ever, in a million, billion, gajillion years, wanted to fight another big war. They were in favor of war in the sense of uh, fomenting revolution, dealing with what they called revolutionary civil wars and so forth, so helping the 
world movement of international communism was there, but they didn't basically want to start anything and be a big war. So, uh, uh, and uh, Wojciech Mosny, a historian who's been through the archives, the Soviet archives, said the strategy of nuclear deterrence was irrelevant to deterring a major war that the enemy did not wish to launch in the first place. All Warsaw Pact scenarios assumed a war started by NATO. Um, so there was nothing to deter. There was plenty of problems, but there was nothing to deter, no war. Uh, the second point, so that's one point, nuclear weapons probably didn't, make, didn't cause this. It's, it was a change of attitude. The second argument that Paul mentioned in passing in his, in his article is that, that, that somehow, he also mentioned nuclear weapons, but um, as a pacifier as well as a danger. Uh, the other issue is basically the conventions that we've had have basically been, uh, the, the reason there has been a war is because we've had all these norms and conventions and institutions. And it seems to me, what I'd like to argue is, that the reason for the norms of the conventions and the institutions, they didn't cause the absence of war or the aversion to war, they were created by it. If you don't want war, you like everybody having to drive on one side of the street, uh, you don't, uh, 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 it, it is, it, it, the, the lack of willingness to be killed by oncoming traffic is not caused by the fact that you have a norm saying you have to drive on one side of the street. And let me give you a few examples of that. Uh, if there's, uh, it, it, what I'm looking at and arguing is that the aversion to international war is facilitating, is an independent variable, an exogenous variable uh, that causes other things to happen. One of the things is economic development. If you're not gonna have a war between a couple of countries, well, trade becomes easier. You go over and see, they have something to buy, they have something, something I can sell them. Would I invest in another country? Well, if we're gonna go to war in another five years, not a very good idea. Um, and, uh, but if you're not, you, you, it basically is there. Um, the, um, and and, and it's it frequently argued that these institutions caused the absence of war, in Europe in particular, and it seems to me the institutions basically the reverse, namely the a desire for war caused the institutions. The, uh, one, one point really interesting, the Germans and the French for, for, uh, filled with clever people. And for centuries, they were using this cleverness to figure out how to get into wars with each other. Since 1945, as far as I can tell, there's never been a single German or a single uh, a Frenchman who stood on a soapbox and said, let's renew the venerable tradition of wars with each other. It basically is not there. Uh, and the coal and steel community, which is often seen to be a big guarantee of peace, was basically to make war harder. In other words, it didn't, wasn't there to make, it didn't make war not possible, but, it would, uh, but what it did was we want to do it because we want to stop war. If you said it's really bad economics, Schumann, the main author, would have said, so what? The, the reason it's there. The same with, Britain, the same with Bretton Woods. Um, this is by one of the now controversial authors of the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944. The argument was that wars have, um, uh, that World War II was caused because of currency problems, which I think is fairly naive, but anyway, that's what a lot of people thought. So therefore, we have to deal with a currency, we've got to stabilize the currency market. It, it, the current, stabilizing the currency market didn't stop World War III. The desire to stop World War III caused the currency market, uh, 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 the currency development. Finally, my last point is that given the situation, uh, maybe um, anarchy isn't such a bad thing. Um, uh, Albert Einstein, among many others, said only the creation of a world government prevent the impending self-destruction of mankind. And it seems to me that 
if you are living, what I'm working on now basically is if you're living in a society of international peace, in other words, you've got a society consisting of 200 countries, and that's it, 200 constituents, and they all agree not to use international war uh, to, to settle their agreements, then you don't really need an overarching government to prevent them from doing what they don't want to do anyway. Uh, you may need, you may have conventions, you want to develop things, where fishing rights and stuff like that. That basically is not, doesn't require a government, it requires groups to come to agreement. And sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. Uh, so it basically leads to a, a situation of, uh, it seems to me this is very likely to be, could well be, a, a self-perpetuating situation. Okay, let me leave it on that. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, there are two things that are different about me uh, in this context. I'm an expert on civil war, not interstate war, so my talk will be focused a little more on that. Second thing that's different about me is I think I'm the only person who was conscripted into this debate. Um, I started uh, researching the decline of war because I was a research assistant, and I was told, you're going to collect battle deaths data because we're going to try to figure out if there's a very long-term trend in war. And I remember thinking to myself, ugh, why? Um, so good question, younger Bethany. Why did we want to know that uh, circa 2003 when I started studying this? My understanding is when the debate started, it was about something that seemed to be happening in the world between 1989 and right around 2001. Data sets that counted wars showed that wars seemed to be declining year by year. So what was at stake in that stylized fact? At the time, there were IR scholars who were debating about whether the international system post-Cold War was going to be qualitatively different than the world during the Cold War. There was a realist school that argued that because anarchy is a constant, Either the world after the Cold War would be roughly the same in terms of the amount of violence, or it would be even worse. John Mersheimer argued that Europe would go back to war. J. David Singer argued that war would shift forms but be essentially constant. The contrary view was put forward by the backers of something like liberal internationalism. And uh, this included the Canadian government, which gave a lot of money to something called the Human Security Report, which gave a lot of money to Uppsala Conflict Data Project and the International Peace Research Institute, which then gave money to me, not a lot, uh, to collect data. Um, and this whole data collection project was aimed at showing that, in fact, there had been a qualitative shift with the end of the Cold War. Um, at stake were trends in civil war and internationalized civil war because throughout this period there just weren't any interstate wars of note. Um, one of the first questions raised in this debate is maybe what's happening, maybe the reason data sets are showing a decline in war after 1991 is that wars have gotten smaller on average. So Uppsala uh, went out and changed the the greatly expanded data sets for war, went from 1,000 deaths a year per year all the way down to, well, we only need 25 deaths per year to call it a war. This data is the result. After they did that, still seemed to be the case that between 91 and 2001, war had declined. Um, 
The next question that was raised is, well, maybe it's the case that more people are dying on average in these wars. And so that if we had data on deaths, it would look like the world after the Cold War was really bad. Um, that's where I came in. Uh, if you look at battle deaths over time, it does not seem to be the case that the trend in battle deaths after 1989 looks markedly different from the trend in the number of conflicts. As Nisha and Paul have pointed out, battle deaths is not a holistic indicator of the costs of war. Um, in my mind, that's not that important because it was only ever a robustness check on what we really care about, which is, uh, or it was only ever a robustness check on one of many measures that we care about of the amount of peace and conflict in the world. It's not the um, final or even the best argument. So what do we know because of this flurry of data collection done um, in uh, right around 2001 to 2005? The first thing we know is that after the end of World War II, the number of conflicts going on in the world increased year by year for a very long time. Um, this increase was in part driven by an accounting problem. IR scholars have traditionally counted conflicts differently if they took place in colonies versus states. Um, as the number of states in the world went up, the number of places that could conceivably have multiple wars, say, also went up. Um, but even if you normalize for a number of states, it looked like between 1946 and 1991, year by year, each year, there were roughly as many conflicts and sometimes slightly more. Again, nothing in this period was like a World War III. It was also overwhelmingly not interstate war. We also basically know why this happened. Um, three things. Problems of occupation and reoccupation caused during World War II, collapse of European imperialism, and the Cold War itself. First, during and after World War II, uh, there were dozens of transfers of power related to the Axis taking over and then the Allies moving back in. As World War II ended, a number of places immediately fell into war uh, as the government was once again up for grabs. You have places where uh, war started during World War II and never stopped, like China. You have places like the Baltics, where there was resistance to the Allied invasion. In you know, the Baltics, it was invasion by the Soviet Union. You have cases of resistance to the return of the colonial power, as in the Philippines, where there was an insurgency against the returning US forces. World War II, in short, had destabilized dozens of regimes, and there were dozens of civil wars immediately following World War II. Another consequence of World War II was the collapse of European imperialism. Wars of decolonization started to proliferate even in places where reoccupation by the Allies had gone smoothly, such as Kenya. Um, there were territorial disputes stemming from decolonization leading to wars that you know, are still with us today, like Kashmir, Israel, Palestine. Um, there's also a number of countries where competing factions went to war immediately at independence, as in Algeria, um, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos all had wars almost immediately between competing factions post-independence. 
As an aside, what these two maps together uh, hint at is the main reason why none of us will live to see something like World War III in the sense of fighting all over the world involving many, many countries. World War I and World War II were only possible because of how centralized political authority was during European imperialism. Um, when Germany conquered Paris, dozens of governments nominally changed hands. Um, when Great Britain entered World War II, they brought a quarter of the world's population with them. If all those colonies had been allies, some of them would have sat it out. We know that because some of them tried to sit it out. Compared to the age of imperialism, political authority now is just vastly less concentrated. The great powers' defensive obligations are much less widespread. Um, we may live to see another war between great powers, but those powers won't be able to conscript the rest of the world into their fight in the way they were during World War II. Um, free riding alone will prevent World War III. Um, that's just an aside. Third thing that caused this year-on-year -year increase in the number of civil wars in the world, superpower proxy war. Um, the US and the USSR intervened directly in favor of a communist or an anti-communist force in many civil wars. And where they weren't doing direct military intervention, they sent money, diplomatic support, um, arms transfers, and so on. The effect of this kind of support was that during the Cold War, the average duration of civil wars was climbing. These wars would start, and they would just never stop because resources just kept coming. Um, so we know why conflicts accumulated after World War II. They were set off by World War II itself, by the collapse of the European empires, and then they were sustained by Cold War financing. We also know that conflicts declined between roughly 1991 and 2001. There was an interregnum between the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the global war on terror, when year by year, the number of conflicts seemed to fall. It's not clear if that decline would have kept going in the absence of 9-11. It may have contained the seeds of its own destruction, but it is clear as a descriptive fact that there was a 10-year period when the number of wars in the world was falling. The most likely reasons why include, first of all, the decline of money uh, with the end of the Cold War. War financing dried up. Um, this is a graph of the number of major arms transfers in the world. Um, started to plummet as interest in keeping the civil wars of the world going on uh, disappeared. There were a number of conflicts that's just in Central America, South Africa, Cambodia, that stopped almost immediately at the end of the Cold War because there's simply no more appetite for sustaining them. We also know in this period the activity of the United Nations began to increase. Um, the United Nations became more involved in good offices, which is what you see on the left, which is when the Secretary General swoops in and tries to convince people not to go to war. The UN also became a real presence in peacekeeping, which it had never done during the Cold War. At the time, there were concerns that UN interventions would create moral hazard, that they would prolong war by preventing military victories. On average, that seems not to have been the case. Um, 
the UN presence seems to have helped contain civil war. So here's the catch. Every plausible theory of what we know, every plausible theory of why this decline in the number of conflicts in the world happened after the Cold War ended, cites some sort of trend that was reversed after 2001. Um, the declining involvement of major powers in civil conflict was reversed by the beginning of global war on terror. Um, the UN and other IGOs have been marginalized in conflict management. Uh, the spread of global democracies uh, in reverse. Um, period of sustained economic growth ended. So the, and the, the moment when this turned around was either, you know, 9-11 or the invasion of Iraq, but whatever salutary trend was in the world doesn't seem uh, to be taking hold anymore. So to summarize, the way I see it is this debate began with people trying to prove that the liberal international moment was better for the world than the Cold War had been. Um, and I think these people successfully demonstrated a decline in conflict between 1991 and 2001. With the benefit of hindsight, you can say liberal internationalism worked and it's a shame that it's gone now. Or you can look at the world now and say liberal internationalism worked briefly, and, but it got us into this mess. Um, but the other point I want to make is that the debate over trends in conflict as a way of settling debates about the nature of anarchy or the international system uh, is, I think, a poorly posed question. Uh, we have a period 1989 to the present when many of the traditional IR variables, like the number of great powers, the relative power, military power of those powers, barely change. And yet we see conflict decline for half of that period and increase for the other. And I think what that should tell us is that it's important to resist both teleological accounts of the international system, where things get better just thanks to the angels. And it's also important to resist a kind of uh, blind realism that just insists that things never change. Um, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was great. Um, before we turn to q and I want to give everyone on the stage an opportunity to address something that they uh, that didn't get a chance to address, just in case. Anything? <clears throat> I would say one key thing that, oh yeah, right here, good, thank you. Um, one thing that I think is, actually came to mind listening to uh, Bethany's excellent remarks was when thinking about, especially as she really did a great job of highlighting kind of the post-Cold War moment, the 1990s, um, end of history, um, you know, all this, everybody is thinking this is the beginning of the liberal order and this is going to restore peace. Of course, you know, that was also a time there was quite a bit of violence in, uh, in the Balkans, for example, as well as in Africa. That was during the, the latter portion of that was the 
the war I mentioned about the Democratic Republic of Congo, which subsequently has been referred to as Africa's World War, um, on the order of two to three million people uh, killed in that war. Nevertheless, the, the trends that are shown in these tables are indeed there. But I think what's important is you could also go back to the 19th century and take 10-year time slices, and maybe even 20-year time slices, and see similar trends. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Jack Levy, wrote a great piece in Perspectives on Politics a while ago, and it was a symposium on Pinker's book. And he said, imagine a variety of international relations scholars back in 1911 meeting up to have a symposium about the decline of war. And he said, and he, the argument he makes is that they would have actually had been on better grounds to have made the argument that war was obsolete than people writing this symposium in 2011, which was when he was writing uh, this in terms of the nature of the international system. So I guess just one, I bring that up to just say that it's important, at least a big claim that we make is it's important to really look at the larger trends when thinking about this debate. Because I think if one looks at the larger trends, again, acknowledging that there can be some data issues once you start going back, data issues that Bethany, of course, has done a lot to help us think about. Um, but be that as it may, when you look at those larger trends, it's not quite clear that there's been a decline in war overall. So that's just another point that I wanted to make. Okay, so before I turn to the audience, I want to use my moderator's uh, prerogative here and ask a question to Paul, but any, any of you can jump in as well. Presumably, this argument has bearing on US foreign policy. Uh, in your opinion, how should US foreign policy be different if you're correct versus if uh, the other side is correct? That is to say, if it's the case that uh, the decline of war thesis is true and it seems robust and we have reason to think it'll continue, um, how should US foreign policy change from a posture that prepares for war in, in the way that you see it? Uh, so I think actually part of this, again, uh, Bethany raised a really good point about saying that bringing up the liberal order, right? And indeed, thinking about the 1990s as being this time of the liberal international order, and of course, that idea has been debated so much in just the past few years due to various changes um, here in the United States and Britain and abroad and elsewhere. And part of the reason why people make a claim or have a desire for that continuation of the features of liberal national order. And when they talk about these features, they're talking about policies, institutions that the US helped to lead to create. Economic institutions like the WTO, security institutions like NATO, or the US also, of course, played a very key role in the creation of the European Union. And they look at these as being hallmarks of this liberal international order. Other aspects to it being the spread of global trade, as well as the spread of democracy. And part of the argument that's been made for why that is a good thing is indeed this argument about the decline of war. They say, look, you know, we've created these things, the US in its not just unipolar moment, but in its moment as a hegemon post-1945, has played a key role in creating these institutions, sustaining these institutions, and look at the outcome. The outcome is this decline of war. Suddenly, if you sit there and, you know, this is not necessarily, you know, I, I'm not necessarily advocating this view, but this would be a conclusion one would take, is that if you say, well, no, war really hasn't been on the decline. We're just kind of back into a system much like the 
like I was saying during my remarks, the late 19th century, early 20th century, then it kind of takes a little bit away from that claim that we have to do all that's possible to sustain NATO. We have to do all that's possible to sustain the WTO. We have to do all that's possible to sustain these institutions. Because if you come out and you say, well, no, actually they haven't had the effect that we think, really what's having a, big, a more dramatic effect is just the nature of the international system, maybe hegemony led the US to be involved in these um, crusades they shouldn't have been involved with. And now that we have the return of multipolarity, that's gonna lead to uh, renewed conflict and renewed prospects for great power war. And so I think that that would be the policy stakes is that if you buy in that there, if you believe that there has not been a decline of war, then you might actually be less inclined to wanna support continuing these institutions. Okay, so we'll turn it over to the crowd, uh, even though I'm restraining myself here um, because free riding alone will prevent World War III is one of the best lines I've ever heard in this, in this debate. So uh, we have someone uh, passing around microphones. Um, and if you could raise your hand, uh, identify yourself, and then uh, ask a question. Do not uh, give us a, a, a debate or a, some kind of statement. I'll, I'll cut you off. We can start here on the aisle. Hi, thank you all. My name is Olivia Zhang, and I am intern here, foreign policy intern here at Cato Institute. So I definitely have a question for all five of you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I am thinking about if you look back into the history of World War I, it's caused by mercantilism. And you look into today, that US-China relationship, the Trump administration, they imposed tariff on Chinese imports. And he oversimplified the US-China trade into a mercantilist lens. So my question is, how do you, five of you think about uh, Trump's, like the trade war is going to um, impact the U.S.-China relationship? Is it going to further escalate into warfare? My second question is, if so, what is your solution to it? I can start maybe with a thought about that. I think there's, we can think of what's going on now as a Trump test. <laughs> a, uh, we, you, you can think of the whole Trump presidency, what a political scientist might call a systemic shock. <laughs> uh, and if, if the, a Trump presidency, which and not only doing these uh, uh, imposing idiotic trade wars and and get, picking unnecessary fights with allies, if this doesn't change the overall systemic trends towards peace, what will? If you don't have a if if a basically a psychopathic idiot in charge of the strongest country in the world doesn't make more war likely, doesn't make Europeans start considering balancing, doesn't make doesn't screw up U.S.-China relations beyond trade war and, and taxes on tariffs on soybeans, then what's going to do it? So I don't, I'm, I'm optimistic. In the notion, this is a test of sort of the pinker hypothesis that's going on now. And if the, if the world gets through it and the trends are the same and there's still no warfare in the Western Hemisphere and Europe or in, around the world, the trends continue, then what's going to shock, shock us out of, that, of this peaceful period? Yeah, on the uh, mercantilist thing, uh, uh, a lot of people say you'd have it backward. The, the, the argument was that there's a lot of free trade really expanding before World War I. Uh, and this was used by the warmongers as a really good thing because the bad thing about war is people get killed and stuff and they get dysentery and things like that. But what you really want to do is have short wars. So the argument was basically overwhelmingly that 
the, the, because of the interlocking international system and so forth, they can't afford to have a long war, so they only have a short one. And therefore, we can have all the wonders of, of, and glories of war, uh, but without having the, the, the unpleasant cost be terribly high. That obviously was shot out of the water overall. Uh, in terms of mercantilism, and one of the big important developments over the 20th century has been the growth of the idea from Adam Smith and, uh, and David Ricardo back in the 18th century of international trade. Uh, in many respects, that only there's a really good book called The Commanding Heights by Jurgen and Stanislaw, basically dealing with this change of attitude. And basically the gradual selling of this idea that the best way to get rich is to trade, not to, not, not to conquer. And that really took a long time to get through, and some people date it as successful only maybe by 1992 with the World Trade Organization. I might also say, uh, 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 in comparison with the pre-war World War I time and now, that the, the anti-war people were horrified because, as they put it, people want war. Bertrand Russell, a pacifist, was going around saying, I was horrified that everybody was quite delighted by the thought of war. Now, if you don't think that attitude has changed in the, in the ensuing 100 years, or in fact, in that case, in the ensuing 20 or 30 years, uh, there, there's something really very wrong. There's been a huge difference in that, and that is uh, basically sort of the basis of my argument. Uh, in terms of, if I'm right, basically, that, that the main, main dominant situation is people simply don't want to do international war anymore, then the system is really very robust. It can't be screwed up. Uh, the United States could withdraw from leadership. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the NATO could out of, go out of business. The UN could go on to other things. And you'd still have basically a peaceful situation because people just don't want to do international war anymore. Let's maybe fit in a few. Are, are there any more questions? We'll go here in the center and then uh, in front of him an aisle. Uh, hello, Evan Sankey, Johns Hopkins Sice. Uh, two of you mentioned nuclear weapons. I was surprised that more of you didn't. Uh, John Mueller mentioned that they're unnecessary for peace. And uh, uh, Professor Post, you, you mentioned that there are some policies that are potentially destabilizing that could lead us back to war. I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit more about that. Thank you. Great. And then just in front, just in front of them too. We'll get both in now. Aguetz, MITRE Corporation, retired. Um, we've been discussing war from the kinetic aspect, uh, usually represented by battle deaths and uh, human destruction. However, the term war has uh, been co-opted uh, into good speaking. For example, the war on poverty or the war on terror or the war against uh, you know, Chinese uh, uh, dumping, etc. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on uh, the use of the term war in these other aspects, some of which include the romanticism of war and what it may preclude. Is this term being misused? Okay, so we've got nuclear weapons and new kinds of war or overuse of the term. Anyone? Should the people who raise nuclear weapons answer it, or should the people who didn't Anyone raise Anyone who has something smart to say <laughs> answer. I have something to say, I know, but smart. <laughs> go ahead, Paul. You go first. Okay, let, oh, oh, no, let John go. Okay. okay. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's a really interesting point that no one brings up nuclear weapons anymore. I've been arguing for 150 years now that they're basically irrelevant. 
Um, the, uh, the, uh, Paul mentions the possibility of nuclear accident. People have been saying that for 75 years now. And there's never been a nuclear accident. Furthermore, if there were a nuclear accident, one bomb going off someplace, the, uh, the sensible conclusion from that, uh, there must have been an accident. No one would start a war with exploding one nuclear bomb. Um, so I, I think they've been basically irrelevant, as I also suggested in terms of the peace since, that, since World War II. Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, I agree about the use, overuse of the word war. Uh, we should have, actually have a war on the use of war for things that aren't wars. Uh, there's also the war on drugs, which has been a fiasco, of course. Uh, and it, it's basically used like slavery. You know, it's a bad thing. Uh, uh, so you have wage slaves and you have kitchen slaves and so forth. Um, so uh, people use it very loosely, and it seems to me a, a, a bad idea um, uh, overall. And then what I would add is I would actually say that my comments regarding nuclear weapons could actually be applied to a host of other um, factors. And this actually ties then into the war comment. I would actually say, in addition, I totally agree that we use the word war in a very loose way. In fact, in many ways, we're still debating what exactly is classified as a war. As Bethany said, you know, do we count 25 deaths? Do we count five? Um, but there's actually another point, and it's a point that we raised in our foreign affairs piece, which is the word peace is actually oftentimes not thought through carefully. Um, as uh, Goldtig had taught us a while ago, um, there is positive peace and there's negative peace. And positive peace, of course, when states are cooperating and getting along and they're signing agreements. Negative peace is when they're effectively deterring each other. And so both of those are an absence of war. Now, how this relates back to your question is, in addition to the number of nuclear weapons that are in existence, there's a whole host of other policies that we see governments currently pursuing that suggest that we're actually in an environment more indicative of negative peace than positive peace. We have record levels of military spending globally. Governments are acquiring weapons. That might be due to a lack of war. That might result in a lack of war, but it's not a lack of the military preparedness or even an interest in using military force, which again kind of goes back to against this kind of better angels argument. Another one, some area that I've collected data on is border walls. Border walls at the collapse of the Berlin Wall there were nine border walls in the world. Today, there's about 70. And in many ways, this is a backlash against the other elements of the liberal order, such as economic um, interdependence. This is kind of a backlash against globalization. You're seeing the rise of more and more border walls. And those are just two examples, along with then the continued existence of nuclear weapons that suggest that governments are not pursuing policies that suggest, as I ended my remarks with, that the better angels of our nature are getting the better of us. Can I, can I jump in real quick, about, especially about this war, and, and add on to that point there, or take, take issue maybe. I hear a lot of people say, oh, the, the nature of war is just changing, or the nature of, it, it, people talk, do talk about positive and negative peace, which to me doesn't mean much. Essentially, positive peace looks a lot more like justice than peace. The definitions of war have evolved, but that's largely because the kinds of wars we had been measuring are in the decline. 
And people say, well, there are people who say, oh, countries just uh, compete in different ways. Countries have always competed in these, these ways. There have always been problems with negative and positive peace. There's always been little problems out there. But now when the big problems are gone, we elevate the little problems to take over the case. And uh, James Woolsey, former head of the CIA, when he, one of his confirmation hearings, said, during the Cold War, there was a dragon in the woods. And we've slayed that dragon, and the dragon has been replaced by poisonous snakes. Okay, uh, but during the Cold War, there was a dragon and poisonous snakes, but nobody paid attention to the poisonous snakes because there was a dragon. So we, <clears throat> we killed the dragon, everyone said, holy cow, look at the snakes. When we get rid, when war and violence is on the decline, we start focusing in, on other problems. I mean, border walls can be popping up, but border disputes are pretty much dead. Uh, and it, 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 it posit the lack of war itself is something we should be paying attention to. We should be a lot less scared about the future than we are. Okay, we've got one in the back there, gentleman in the middle of the aisle, and probably can fit in one more if anyone has a question. Okay, down here. Uh, David Rossman, DOD retired. I'm interested in what repeating your, Mr. Glazier's question, uh, what our policy should be out of this discussion, U.S. policy. You talk a little louder. Of a, what I think is still a current applicable, quote, paraphrase from John Stuart Mill, that war is a terrible thing, but, uh, you know, when you lose the moral degradation of standing up to something, what do you do? And I'm specifically South China Sea. It seemed like there's an incrementalism there and at what point does somebody say, stop? You're building these military bases. You're baking an island. Uh, what do we do about it? Do we just ignore it? Um, Got it. And uh, we'll also fit in in the third row here, gentleman raising his hand. Dan Lieberman on the right. Uh, yeah, two things I haven't heard uh, mentioned. One is economic warfare, hasn't the actually military warfare been replaced by economic warfare, which can maim and kill an adversary without firing a shot, and which really hurt a lot of Iraqi people in the 90s and is hurting the North Korean, Iranian people now. And the other thing is globalization. Uh, most wars to me seem to be fought for acquiring markets and globalization has prevented that, and isn't uh, President Trump making a big mistake in not recognizing that globalization can be used to prevent war? Okay, thank you. Policy implications of the South China Sea. Je uh, very selfishly, I know Chris has essentially the same position as me, so I want him to, <laughs> to start with that one, and then economic warfare, globalization. You want to start with the, pilot, the South China Sea? Policy implications. Uh, let's, let's just have a little bit of a thought experiment here. What happens if China rules the South China Sea? I'd suggest nothing. They have no, their interest is to keep trade flowing through the South China Sea. They don't want it to be cut off. We don't want it to be cut off. Our interests actually align, but we're too stupid to figure that out. And we're, we're too, we're too, we uh, have this notion that, that we have this has to be some kind of dominance of the South China Sea. I don't understand why. I don't, it doesn't seem to me that if we were to pull back a lot of our, our forces that the world would go to hell quickly. Uh, the notion that the only thing to keeping the world peaceful is, the US, is U.S. power 
is sort of belied by those areas that have no U.S. power that are pretty peaceful. South America, for instance, if Argentina and Brazil can go to war tomorrow, we're, we're not going to send troops to stop them, but they don't. And uh, it, it seems to be a rational policy would be start moving back a little bit and see what happens. And if the Europeans don't think, you know, hey, let's, the, the cops aren't here, let's fight again, everybody, hooray. If they don't say that, maybe we can spend a little bit less. Maybe our, maybe it's an illusion to think the only thing standing between chaos and peace is us. Policy implications, economic warfare, globalization. Bethany. Um, on globalization, this brings us back to Olivia's question to a certain extent, I think. I think the um, research question for um, people like myself who, who miss when we had a liberal economic international order um, is, is it self-limiting? Did it undermine itself by uh, eroding the political consensus that was necessary to keep globalization going, keep free trade going, glowing, going, not glowing. Um, and uh, uh, so I would like to see us get back there. The question is, can it be sustained in more than fits and starts before some sort of populist backlash? Other additions? Yeah, well, beginning. Uh, the, uh, in the South China Sea, just to tag on to what um, uh, Chris was saying, the United States Navy has decided it's the uh, guarantee, guarantor of shipping in the global commons. In other words, it gets to police the whole ocean of the whole world. Uh, the problem from a Chinese standpoint is that police are very good at keeping roads open. They're also very good at closing roads, like when you want to do a parade or something, speaking of Washington. Uh, and so the problem in the South China Sea is really vital to them. And so therefore, they get antsy about the idea that the U.S. Navy, led by uh, Donald Trump, uh, could close off that avenue. So that, that's what they say, and it seems to me that should be taken seriously. In terms of economic warfare, I think there has been. I think it's been misused. Uh, Trump has been using it a lot. Uh, and it's just not a very good idea. You certainly can have economic warfare in which you say, I'm not going to buy that stuff that you're selling because it's too expensive. Uh, there's deals like that all the time. But uh, the very sanction, uh, war sanctioning and the tariff thing, I think, is basically screwing things up and is largely causing people to try to figure out how ar uh, arrangements out of it. That's certainly the case with the, the sanctions on Iran. Uh, it has not changed Iranian policy at all, but it has caused a lot of our friends who are, who are hit by secondary sanctions to try to figure out ways they can get out from under the United States umbrella. Uh, and, and out of the American dominance in terms of economics. And I think that's not necessarily a good thing for the United States or for the world. Oh, you have an opportunity for the last word. Oh, Chris. I'm sorry, just one real quick thing on that, too. There's always been economic warfare. Uh, there's always been countries trying to cut off the trade of others. We just pay more attention to it now and say that's how war's evolving. No, that's one of those snakes that's always been there. The Romans tried to use economic warfare against their neighbors. It kills fewer people, which sometimes, sometimes, depending on how it's done, it can be killing a lot more. But it's always been there. It's nothing new. It's one of these perversions of the word war, like the war on poverty, which, I, you know, I don't know if that involves shooting the poor. We'd win the war on poverty probably if, they, if it were. But it's just one of the kinds of ways that war is being used that's irrelevant to larger violence. Yeah. Actually, just to second that point, I, I, I agree. I mean, gunboat diplomacy is a very old policy, right? And the gunboat diplomacy was often driven by economic considerations. It's just one example. For me, I just want to pick up on the South China Sea question to really just bring it to a larger point that I think maybe is a good point to end on. We'll, we'll find out if it is. Um, which is, 
John Kerry, when he was Secretary of State uh, around 2013, made the statement that he said, the Cold War is not a useful historical period to think about today. He said, the world we're going into is much more like the 18th and 19th century. And the reason why he was saying that was because in many ways we're returning, in his view, and I think this is an accurate view, we're returning to an age of multipolarity, not bipolarity. The reason why it matters, though, is then it decides, you have to decide, well, if there's going to be the reemergence of major powers, how should our relations be with those major powers? Now, something that we've heard, I've heard a lot of discussion about is the, renew, the new Cold War with China. And so this is how it relates back. My view is that's actually the wrong analogy. I think our relations with China will be much more like our relations were with the British during the late 19th century and 20th century, where, again, people kind of forget that actually there was always thought to be a prospect of war, but it was much more naval competition between the two. There were some other competitions, colonial territories, so forth, around the world. Instead, I think the major flashpoint in that region is the traditional flashpoint of Japan, possibly, and China. Maybe that pulls in U.S., but I think a lot of people forget about animosities between, say, India and China. That's a really, that is a real flashpoint. Um, also, Russia and China. There's potential always for a conflict there. So I do think that as we reemerge, as we come back into an age of multipolarity, it's going to create new opportunities for conflict, conflict between major powers. But I think in the process of doing that, if we're thinking about policy implications for it, it's important to use the right analogy to kind of conceptualize those. Uh, why don't you join me in giving our speakers a round of applause. Thank you so much for coming.